the kids are making their way out, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Am I good, Mike? As you got your finger there at Revelation 2, I want you to also put a finger or a bookmark of some, pl- some sort in Re- Ephesians chapter 2, a chapter that Holly mentioned just uh, a little bit ago. We're going to be in both those passages this morning. Uh, it's good to be back with you today on this Sunday morning, and uh, four of us left uh, on the 1st, October 1st, and we flew to um, South Asia, we flew into Kolkata and uh, spent a number of days there working with some uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, two of them you know, uh, is from here in this area, she married a, a man from that part of the world and they're doing a great work there and so I bring you greetings this morning from brothers and sisters literally on the other side of the earth and uh, we were in Walmart just a couple days ago, and I knew that it was like on the other side of the earth. I always say that, but I hadn't really taken a globe and looked at it. I just look at a map, and a map's not really tells the full story, but literally it's on the exact opposite side of where we are right now. And so it's amazing when you think about today that with our technology, we can, in a few hours, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, because if you fly to South Asia, it's not a couple hours. It's like 20 hours of hard flying and uh, a lot of... Um, a lot of pain because you're setting down for so long, but uh, it's amazing that we can do that and literally take the gospel uh, to places that would have taken months, if not years, uh, not too long ago to get there. So I bring you greetings from our brothers and sisters there, and it's really neat to just to be able to see God at work and God moving the lives of people and how He's drawing uh, folks, men, women, children, out of idolatry, out of Hinduism and, and just the, the, the various religions of that land and, and bringing them into relationship with himself. And it's all through the power of the gospel. It's amazing how the word of God is true. It should not amaze us, but it, it does. That the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so we saw that while we were over there. And we saw people come to faith in Jesus, not by the, by the dozens, but a few here and there, and really what we were doing is planting the, the seed of the gospel. And, uh, and we did that so many times, encouraged the church, and they encouraged us. And so this next Sunday, we hope to have a little bit more of a full report for you. But uh, pray for our, our, uh, our, 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 our brothers and sisters over there in, uh, in that land. They need, uh, they need our encouragement, they need our help, but man, we need them as well. It's amazing to be over there and how much they encourage us because it's a lot more difficult to be a follower of Jesus in that land than it is to be a follower of Jesus in this one. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to continue our study through the book of Revelation this morning in this series that I've simply titled, Get Ready. As you read the book of Revelation, you see that that's the message right off the, from the very beginning is we need to prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, prepare our lives, our families, our church and our nation through the preaching of the gospel because there's coming a day that Jesus will return. And so we're going to move into chapter 2 this morning and over the next several weeks walk through these seven letters written to the seven churches and see what God has to say to the church then and the church today. Speaking of, of church, uh, when you think about discovering or selecting a church to uh, to join or to, uh, to become acquainted with, a, a church to become your church home. That's a difficult thing to do. If you have ever moved into a new community and began that search, that process yourself, you know how difficult that can be. Uh, it's difficult to understand who a church is or what a church is all about and who makes up that church and, and what their goal and mission is. It's, it takes some time and sometimes we can be enamored with facilities, we can be enamored with, with ministries or programs and so impressive buildings and the like can look good on the outside but do nothing but encase or hold a dying or a dead church. While the flip side is also true. You can look at a church and say, there's not much going on here. There's no impressive buildings. There's not a lot of infrastructure. There's not a lot of uh, highlighting programs. They don't have this newest, hottest children's program. And yet in that church, when it doesn't look like much is going on, what you find is an assembly that's literally on march for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church, we think, 
is rich, that is, has, its, has it going on, they've got things rocking and rolling, may actually turn out to be nothing more than poor in the sight of the Lord, while what we would consider a poor church is actually rich. And we're going to see that as we walk through these letters. And so it's difficult for us to, to learn who the church is and what the church is about, but Jesus doesn't have a problem with that. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the head of the church, and he can accurately inspect each and every local church. He can know its true condition because Jesus is able to do what you and I cannot do, and that is he can look through the external and see the internal. He can look through the facade and see and know and understand the heart of each and every church. If we move through these seven letters that are sent to these seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we will see that the Lord here took an x-ray of each of these churches. And he provided a health report to each and every church. This report revealed the good and the bad. He gave them some things that they were commended for. He also spoke about the unhealthy aspects of each church. The health reports. However, we're not just for the individual churches to read us. We see this even this morning. I want you to understand that as he speaks to individual churches, he's also speaking to individual Christians. They were intended for all the churches to read, all the churches to benefit from, thus all believers to read and to benefit from. And so on some level, each church experienced similar conditions. Even though one message may be, may be and is tailored to a specific church, more than likely in every church, all of these situations, all of these goods and bads are present in the church. So in speaking to the church, the Lord here was also speaking to us. And so we need to listen this morning. We need to pay attention as we walk through these letters and ask the question, God, what are you speaking to me about? God, where does this apply to me in my life and how I'm walking with you? What is my participation in your kingdom? And so let us not dismiss these messages thinking that they're simply a corporate address. No, there is a corporate church, but individuals make up the church. And so churches are individuals, and therefore we need to listen and examine our hearts. Also, another thing I want you to see before we even read the text this morning is that as John, who received this revelation from the Lord Jesus, as he is compiling this for us, John is a pastor. He has a pastor's heart. And here he's writing and, and sharing with the church in an attempt to encourage the believers during a very difficult time of persecution. See, the church needed to be reminded that suf their suffering was not in vain. One of the things that we wanted to do this past week while in South Asia was encourage the church there that what they're doing, what they're striving to do for the kingdom of God is not in vain, but it's profitable. It's profitable and beneficial to the kingdom of God. And so John here is writing to encourage and, and, and to remind them that Jesus would return and bring their persecutors to justice. We're going to see this as we move on through Revelation that the people of God want there to be justice. And we all want justice. And so he's saying, be faithful. Walk with Jesus. Be encouraged because he will return and justice will be brought. But before the world is judged... We learn from other passages as well as what we see here in these letters is that Christ wants to first judge his own people. He wants to begin in the house of God before it moves on to the others. And so here he's writing to correct, to admonish, yes, but to correct areas in the life of the church that are not pleasing to him. The late British preacher and evangelist G. Campbell Morgan said this. He says, it's a very remarkable thing that the church of Christ persecuted has been the church of Christ pure. The church of Christ patronized has always been the church of Christ impure. And so what Campbell, G. Campbell Morgan would say here is this, is that sometimes, many times, the Lord uses suffering and difficulties and heartache and all of the things that come with that to purify the church, to bring correction to the church so that they're ready when Jesus returns. When it's easy for us, we have a tendency to be impure. So as we understand this, we understand that a purified church need never fear the attacks of the enemy or of men. So here the Lord Jesus, in writing to these seven churches, begins with those who are in Ephesus. And he presented them with their health report. Look with me in verse 1. Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are an enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This morning, I want to speak to this subject, and it's just simply addressed, Ephesians return. That's the message that God is speaking to the church at Ephesus, and it's a simple message. Return to the love and the things that you did at first. He's speaking here to those who are in Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city along with Rome, Alexandria, and Syrian Antioch. Ephesus was really one of the most one of the four most powerful cities in all of the Roman Empire. It boasted of a population of more than 250,000 people. It was a major hub for commerce and transportation. I was hoping you'd be able to see that map a little better, but either you got better eyes than I do or uh, no one none of us can see that map, but uh, uh, Ephesus is on there somewhere. It's the red dot, yes. Uh, the red dot actually points out where Ephesus is. And, and so let me just give you some, some geographical layout of where it is. Ephesus did lay there at the harbor where the Caister River met the Aegean Sea in western Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey for us. Three great trade routes met in that city from the Euphrates by way of Laodicea and Colossae, from Galatia by way of Sardis, and from the Meander Valley in the southeast corner of Asia Minor. And so three trade routes came and, and, and crossed there in the, in the Ephesian area. Thus it had a harbor, and so it was a major hub for commerce, a major hub for trade, which made it a very influential and powerful city in the empire. And so as you can imagine, most of the people, not all, but most of the people in Ephesus were affluent. They were wealthy. Uh, it's true of most any city or area that is affluent is that there is a level of affluence. We would say in America that we are an affluent country. Does that mean everybody is, is, is rich beyond measure? Absolutely not. So a few days ago, we were in Dubai flying back through. We had a 13-hour layover. And so we thought, let's go into the city. Dubai is this amazing city. It boasts of the tallest building in the entire world. Let's go see it. And so we did, and it was neat. We went to the biggest mall in the world. It was fancy. It was uh, had everything Western that you could imagine. We stood there at the base of uh, the Burj Khalifa. Khalifa, I think is how you said that big building. And it was just an amazing thing. Unfortunately, we didn't realize that at 5.30, everybody gets off work in the financial district where we were. And so we're getting back on the subway, and it was jammed packed all the way until we got to the other side of the tracks where those who are not as wealthy live, and it began to let off. And so we're in this major financial district, extreme wealth everywhere, and yet the people who worked there were not the wealthy ones. They were the ones who lived on the other side of the tracks. This city, Ephesus, was a wealthy city. Religiously, Ephesus was best known for its temple to the fertility goddess Artemis. And so this temple was outside the city. It literally had thousands of priests and priestesses. Many of them were sacred prostitutes uh, who, who served there in the temple. Many historians believe the temple was the largest building in the ancient world. It was the first major temple constructed completely of, of marble. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. Cult worship thrived there. Uh, and so this was a metropolitan area, a religious area with all sorts of temples and shrines and worship. Emperor worship was prevalent there. This was a religious city. And into this culture, the gospel is planted. Paul brings the gospel. He brings along with him Priscilla and Aquila there in Acts chapter 18. They begin to preach the gospel in the synagogue. P Paul didn't stay long, but he left Priscilla and Aquila there. And they, went along with Apollos, began to preach the gospel, lead people to Christ, developed a church there that began to influence the culture around them. 
We see that later Paul returned and spent two years and three months with the church. And so Ephesus became not just a hub for commerce, not just a hub for transportation, not just an influential city from a political standpoint. Ephesus became an influential hub for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, we learn in 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 Acts chapter 19 that every resident of Asia had heard the gospel. The Ephesian believers were a vibrant people of God. As we shall see, each of the seven messages that we're going to read in these two chapters in Revelation begins with a personal description or designation of Jesus taken from the vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1. We have it here. He says, the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here, Jesus is reminding them that he is the one who holds the church in his hand. He's the one who walks in their midst. And so we ask the question, Jesus, why do you begin this letter like this? I think it's because the Ephesians had such a rich history of influential pastors and leaders in their church that they needed to be reminded that I don't follow Paul, I don't follow Apollos, I don't follow John, men who influenced this church. I follow Jesus, and the church is still held in his hand. They were rich in their theological upbringing. They'd enjoyed incredible leadership over the years. And yet the Lord reminds them here that he was in control of their ministry. He was the one who placed the star there where he pleased. He was in control every single day. And so for us, it's easy. I believe it's easy for us as Christians to forget that as we follow, not a bad thing, but as we follow the leaders that God's gifted us with. I was talking to someone not long ago and uh, used to come to this church. And so I just asked the question, as I was always asked, why did you leave the church? What, what led to that? And, and I really didn't get a straight answer, didn't really know, but I, I was clued in. Some pastor was here before, and then after that, they no longer came anymore. And so I just, by deduction, began to realize, more than likely, this person, because their pastor, their friend, their leader, the one who influenced them greatly in their life, which is a good thing because that person left, they also left the church. That should never be the case. We don't follow pastors. We don't follow leaders. We don't follow small group leaders like that. We follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand the, the leadership. The pastors are the gift of the church. But when God moves them because they are held in his hand, we do not lose faith. We continue to trust in Jesus as he holds the church. Now, before you begin to speculate, I'm not going anywhere, all right? Some, some of you, your brains were beginning to run. Where in the world does that statement come from? Just a statement. And so let's look at the Lord's message here to the Ephesian believers. Uh, first, I want you to, to see this. Before we get to some, some points, I want you to see a few things. Jesus begins in verse 2 with uh, a short statement. He says, I know. I know. The Greek term here that's used speaks of complete and full knowledge rather than a term he could have used that speaks more of a, a knowledge that comes through progression. And so what Jesus here in early on in this letter is saying, I know everything there is to know about you. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I stand outside of time. I know everything there is to know about you, about your situation. When you think about what the, those words means, it ought to bring comfort to your heart and our hearts corporately as a church knowing that Jesus knows everything there is to know about us. He knows the good, the bad. He knows the dangers and the pitfalls. He knows the temptations that are coming. He knows the, the, the journey that we've been on. He knows it all, and he's orchestrating everything for his glory and for our good. Because he knew their condition, Jesus was able to commend them for five areas of faithfulness. I'm going to draw these from Warren Wearsby, if you will allow me this, this morning. Five things that, that Wearsby lays out here that we see in this text about Jesus' commendation of this church is this. Jesus commended them, first of all, for being a serving church. Verse 2, he says, I know your works. This church was a busy church. They were busy doing the works of the Lord. If we were to see their calendars, if we were to see their schedule of activities, we would see that this church was being busy doing the things of God, encouraging people, preaching the gospel, ministering to needs. There's no doubt that their weekly schedule was filled with activities. Secondly, Jesus commended them for being a sacrificing church. He says, I know your toil. This term here denotes labor to the point of exhaustion, and it demands everything that a person has to give. Here's a church, here's a people of God who sacrificed to serve the Lord. The Ephesian believers paid a price to serve Jesus. I, I was one of our translators this past week while we were there. 
I learned, I think the day before we left, we learned that he literally, he and his wife, because of their commitment to Christ, because of their commitment to the gospel and sharing it with people around them, had literally been ostracized from their family and run out of their community. Sacrificing for Jesus. This church was a sacrificing church. Jesus also commended them for being a steadfast church. He says, I I know your patient endurance. This term carries the idea of endurance under trial. In other words, this church kept going when the going was tough. So many times we in America, I feel like we in America, when things get difficult, we just quit. We just quit. I don't, I don't, Jesus, he won't ever give me more than I can handle. That is a lie from hell. But we say that. We, we allow people to say that. That is not biblical whatsoever. Jesus always gives you more than you can handle. Barbara, we wouldn't need him if we didn't, if we couldn't handle it or could handle it on our own. This was a steadfast church. So this this church kept going when the going was tough. When the temperature got hot in the kitchen, they stayed in there. Fourthly, that Jesus commended them for being a separated church. Verse 2 and verse 6, we see this. He says, I... Uh, I, I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I also commend you for, for hating the Nicolaitans because I hate the Nicolaitans as well. I hate the teaching that they have. And so here's a church that separated themselves from false doctrine. They were ones who carefully examined all the visiting preachers to see if they were genuine. You see, if you remember back in Acts chapter 20, Paul, when he's coming back from his third missionary journey, he, he stops there in Miletus and he invites the Ephesian elders to come down on his way back. He's in a hurry and there he encourages them. He says, there's going to come wolves from within and from without and they're going to preach false teaching. You need to make sure that you test what they say. So here's a church that separated themselves so much so that they wouldn't just take it because somebody said it. They it, analyzed it and put it up against the word of God determined that they were false. They tested these preachers. They hated the work of the Nicolaitans. You say, who are the Nicolaitans? Well, we only find two references to it in in all of the Bible here and within the letter to Pergamum. Because of this, it's kind of hard to make a definitive uh, answer or give a definitive answer as to who they were. But we can, I believe, ascertain that what these people were about. Nicolaitanism in this reference and in the reference to to the church at Pergamum links itself with the teachings of Balaam and of Jezebel. And so the two sins that were prominent there were idolatry and immorality. And so therefore it's likely that the twin problems were syncretism, this idea of I want to take the, the gospel and I want to syncretize it or I want to mix it with the cultural understandings of how we should live life. And, and, and so we be, it's no longer the gospel, it's no longer the truth, it's a melting pot that's falsehood. We came, along, came across a lot of that in South Asia where you share the gospel and you say, would you like to put your faith in Jesus? Absolutely, yeah, I want to do that. Do you want to denounce your other gods? No, don't want to do that. I don't want to do it. I want to put Jesus on the shelf with everything else. That you can't do. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The other side was this immorality was this antinomian liberties type of stuff. In other words, I want to show freedom from the law by engaging in everything and anything. And that way I can bring glory to God. And so this was a sensual, immoral, and wicked philosophy. This church separated themselves from that. Fifthly and lastly, Jesus commended them for being a suffering church. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. These believers were a suffering people who patiently bore the burdens and toiled without fainting. These five commendations would, would lead most of us to think that this is a strong church, and it was a strong church, that this was a perfect church. No, there's no such thing as a perfect church. But they were biblically strong, they were faithful, they were engaged in the work of Christ. See, the one who walked among the seven golden lampstands, however, could see past the surface into the deep recesses of their hearts. And he had a different diagnosis than we would. Verse 4, he says, I have this against you. Wow, Jesus, where does that come from? It looks like a solid church. What can we possibly bring against this church? 
Jesus was not satisfied, listen to this, with their orthodoxy. Jesus wasn't satisfied that they simply believed right. Jesus wasn't satisfied that they had the right doctrinal statement. He wasn't satisfied that they, they carried their Bibles and read their Bibles. It's good to possess and be committed to biblical orthodoxy, but Jesus would tell us that's not enough. He's just as committed to right living. He's committed to orthopraxy as he is committed to orthodoxy. Here's a statement. I, I said this in Gloria the other day. I think we're flying back, and I was like, what do you think about this? Orthodoxy without orthopraxy is a false religion. She looked at me like, huh, what does that mean? So I'm, I'm just break it down. Orthodoxy, right believing. Orthopraxy, like right living. If we just believe right, but we don't allow, if it's just head knowledge that never really touches our heart, it's nothing more than a false religion. But when we allow the gospel to change who we are from the inside out, that's where we want and need to be. Mounts in his commentary reminds us that every virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. I believe that's what we have going on here. It seems probable that the desire for sound teaching, the resulting forthright action to exclude all impostors, had created a climate of suspicion in which harmonious relationships were hard and difficult. There was a lot of suspicion, there was a lot of misbelieving, there was a lot of doubt going on. They would look at the outside community and, and, and many, in, in many ways, perhaps like the Jews, hold their hands out and say, you can't come in here because we're a pure people for the, for the God of the world, God of creation. They allowed their love to grow cold for the Lord and thus grow cold for people. Biblical orthodoxy is a good thing. In fact, it's paramount if we want to be faithful to the Lord. Nevertheless, good works and pure doctrine are not adequate substitutes for that rich relationship of mutual love shared by those who've experienced the redemptive work and the love of God. See, as Christians, we can't ever get over when we met Jesus. I wonder today, I want you to think about this as we get into these three steps that we're going to see here. I want you to think about this. Have I gotten over that moment when I came to Christ? Has my relationship with the Lord, though I've, I've gained in head knowledge, though I've, I've grown in, in sanctification, I'm, I'm not living and doing the things that I used to do, I'm not even thinking the way I used to, but for some reason and in some way, I'm not as passionate for the Lord and I'm not as passionate for people as I was when I first came to know Jesus. That's what's going on here in these Ephesians' hearts. The Ephesians, for all their good qualities, had begun to love their religious activities more than they loved God. I believe it's very similar to the Pharisees in the days of Jesus. They loved their religious activity more than the God who stood before them. Consequently, their love, they loved their religious activity more than they loved people. And so the message Jesus has for the church here is this, return. And he gives three things that I want to share with you, three steps that we can utilize to return to him. First thing I want you to see is we got to remember God's love for you. You've got to remember God's love for you. We've got to remember God's love for us. He says in verse 4, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Verse 5 I should say. Remember from where you have fallen. Jesus calls the church here to remember. He, he calls them to reflect upon those earlier days as they came to know Jesus. The instruction here is a present active imperative. Present meaning you need to do it today. Active means it needs to keep happening day after day after day. And in, it's an imperative because it's not a suggestion. See, if we're going to walk with Jesus, we're going to have the heart that Jesus wants to have. We're going to be in constant good fellowship with him. We have to follow what he says. We've got to be in love with Jesus. Remember from where you've fallen. Memory's an, an, an amazing thing. Jesus calls them to remember. Think about what memories are. Memory can be a powerful force in effecting a return to a better and more satisfying relationship. Sometimes when, when, when life is difficult, what do we do? We begin to reflect on those good old days, right? Man, I wish it was like that. Man, I wish, I, I, I remember those days and how wonderful it was. Why can't it be like that? It sounds a whole lot like that young man in Luke chapter 15 when Jesus talked about the prodigal son. You remember that story? 
Young man came to his dad and says, Dad, I want my inheritance. I'm tired of living underneath your, your house. I want what's mine. And the father graciously gave it to him. Why, we don't know. He gives it to him. The young man goes. He wastes it on lavish living, on lewd things. And he finds himself at the end of himself in a, here's a Jewish boy, finding himself in the pig pen eating pig slop. I grew up in Arkansas around a whole lot of hogs and chickens. It's not a good smelling place to be. The Bible tells us, I believe in Luke 15, 17, that he came to himself. He came to his senses. He began to remember what it was like back home. He began to remember what his father was like. He began to think about how good his father's servants had it and how much better they had it there than he had it where he was. And so he remembered the goodness of his father. Jesus here calls upon the Ephesian believers to remember God's love for them. They were as Jews and Gentiles, once dead in their trespasses and sins. I want you to take your Bible, if you've got Ephesians 2, Mark. I just want us to read this text. We don't have a lot of time to do this, but I think it's important to see this. Ephesians 2, 1, And you were dead in in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's the good news. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great what? The great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, Jesus here calls these Ephesians to reflect and to remember his love. Paul explains what that love means for us. Those of us who were dead, and that's all of us, dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, separated from God, following the course of this world, following the enemy, following the passions of our flesh. And what God tells us here through Paul, we are children of wrath under his just judgment. But verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy, being in love with us, by grace reached out and rescued us from the destruction. They who were once far off, we were separated from God, but through the blood of the cross, we have been brought near to him. You see, the Ephesians were so busy maintaining their separation from the world that they were neglecting, listen, their adoration for God and what he had done for them. How many times do we do that as well? We get so fixated upon on, on being religious, on being sanctified, set apart, and there's nothing wrong with that. We ought to pursue sanctification. We ought to pursue holiness. We ought to pursue Bible study and and being good church members and faithful and serving and all those things are good. But when they begin to replace our love for Jesus and our amazement of the gospel, Jesus looks at us and says, I have this against you. You've forgotten your first love. Orthodoxy to push out their orthopraxy. So they no longer stood amazed by grace. Sounds like I mentioned earlier, like the condition of the Pharisees during the days of Jesus' ministry. So committed to keeping the law that they didn't recognize the one who had given it to them. Here's what I think what happened with the Pharisees is I've read the Bible and, and, and done history and all that stuff. Is I believe because they had walked away from God so blatantly and were exiled and when, when um, you ever just draw a blank on a Bible character? Starts with an E. Nehemiah and those guys. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, one of those Bible guys. Uh, when they came back and they began to, to preach and, and figure out who's actually a part of the people of God, they, they formed this, this mindset that we're going to be doubly committed to the Word of God, which is a great thing. But they forgot to be just as committed to the love of God. And so they're orthodoxy became cold and crusty, so much so that when the Son of God stood before them, they didn't even recognize him. Instead, they put him on a cross. Their amazement over grace was replaced with entitlement. So their love grew cold. Ephesians 
2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, we should strive to remember God's love. We should strive to remember what he's done for us. See, we can bring, we bring nothing into this relationship. I want you to understand this this morning. You bring nothing. You, if you know Christ, you brought nothing into the relationship with Jesus except a bunch of baggage. You brought sin. You brought immorality, you brought wickedness, you brought unclean things, you brought wrath and judgment, you brought the worst of the worst of the worst. You say, I didn't bring that. I grew up in church. I was a good Baptist. No, you were lost and without Christ, a child of the wrath of God. And the only thing you brought to Jesus was your junk. You brought your brokenness. You brought your messed up life. And Jesus brought himself and with his blood paid the penalty for your sin. Today you've been brought near, not because you were good enough. You've been brought near because Jesus is good enough. He calls us to remember his love. Man, you guys got me off on that for a long time. Today, if, if your heart is cooled like the Ephesians' hearts have cooled, if you no longer adore Jesus like you once did, I, I want to call you to do what Jesus calls the Ephesians to do, and that is remember from where you've fallen. So easy for us to forget who we were. So easy for us to forget how we were before we met Jesus Christ. Our men, some of our men on Wednesday nights are going through the book of, of um, Hosea. The book of Hosea, you've got Hosea being told by God, I believe in the first chapter or two, to go and to take a wife of Portum. And so he goes and takes Gomer as his wife, and it's a representative of how the people of God are treating God. And I just want you to know that's who you were before you came to know Jesus. You were Gomer, chasing anything and everything there was in this world rather than the God who created you for himself. You're like Abraham who's living on the wilderness serving idols when God called to you. You had nothing that would attract God to you whatsoever. It's his grace that drew you. You were vile, wretched, unclean, sinful, lustful, and lost. But God, being rich in mercy, lovingly called to you with the gospel. And so remember his love. That leads you to a second step, and this will be shorter. Remember God's love for people. Jesus was once challenged by a lawyer. If you remember this in, in Matthew 22, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Always trying to trip him up, Jesus responded and says, all right, here's the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he took it a step further, and he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hinge or rest all of the prophets and the law. Jesus tells us the thing we need to do more than anything else is to love God, and the second thing is to love people. That's who we're to be. That's what we're to be. We're to be a person or a people in a church that loves God and loves people. Our God, why are we to do that? It's because our God is a God of love, and it is love that causes him to pursue sinners. So as followers of Jesus, can we as followers of Jesus can love others only because we have first been loved by Jesus, I, I confess to you, when I'm on the field and I'm overseas in a cross-cultural setting, I'm amazed because I, I grew up in Arkansas. When I, when I was a kid, I, went, I grew up in a town of all white people. We didn't have a black student in my high school before I went to a private school uh, until I think after I graduated. So that, that's a culture I grew up in. It wasn't necessarily a racist culture. It's just we didn't have any... People that weren't white, and then Hispanics began to move in, and then uh, other cultures began to move in. But it, still, I, I'm amazed when I go cross-culture, because I look, and I'm standing there in a sea of Indians, and Pakistanians, and uh, people from Bangladesh, and all these different places, and they none of them look like us. In fact, we were at a place our last day there, and, and we were doing some sightseeing, and, and uh, all these men wanted to come and take pictures with Jonathan and me. It's the weirdest thing in the world. It actually got annoying after a while. I'm like, you need to pay me for this. And I felt like a celebrity. Some of them, I asked, asked some of our national partners, they're like, have, do you think some of these have ever seen a white person before? He's like, no, this is a, this is a celebration time because of this, this goddess that's being worshipped right now. And so they've come in from the villages, so there's a good chance they've never seen a white person before. But I'm standing there at the airport as we were waiting for our cars to arrive to take us when we first arrived. And I'm looking around, I'm like, God made all of these people in his image. They look nothing like me. I'm from the hills of Arkansas. They look nothing like me, and yet God made them in his image. 
And God loves them. Paul here instructs Timothy in the Ephesian church to uphold strong doctrine, to preach the gospel, to do the work of an evangelist. He says this in our study in 2 Timothy this past summer, we learned this. He tells the church in Ephesus to stand for these things. But unfortunately at this point, years later, the Ephesians' pursuit of sound doctrine had caused their love for God to grow cool and the cooling of their personal love for God inevitably led to a cooling of love for people and harmonious relationships within the church led them perhaps to no longer care and to be passionate about sharing the gospel. Here's a statement. A Christian who has forgotten how great God's love is for him or her and how great of a sacrifice was made on the cross will never be compelled to share and model that message of love with those who need it. Perhaps the reason most Christians today, and I think I can say that statement with with accuracy. Perhaps the majority of Christians in America today will not walk across their lawn or walk across the aisle at a store and share the gospel with a, someone. It's because they don't really love God. And when you don't love God, you won't love people. God tells the Ephesian church here, return. Remember God's love for you. Remember God's love for people and go and do likewise. There's a third step to return, that is repent and return to love. This divine x-ray of this church revealed a spiritual malaise, if you will. They had abandoned their love for God and replaced it with religious activity. They were engaged in good works. They were doing good stuff. They were doing things that's important to the kingdom. And many times that's true of our churches today. Nevertheless, their works were cold. And so the prescription for the spiritual condition was simple. Repent and Return to love. Repent, a, a word that we use all the time, but let me, just, let me just explain it again. The word here used is the basic New Testament term for a change of the heart. It involves a repudiation of the past as well as an embracement of a new future. In other words, it, un, it means this. I've been walking in a direction that's contrary to the love of God. I've been walking in a direction that's contrary to the holiness of God. And now I'm beginning to understand that. And so I'm going to repudiate this direction. I'm going to turn from this direction. And I'm going to go in the opposite direction that is moving toward and with the Lord. It's used 11 times in the book of Revelation. Seven of those references are found in these seven letters. All of them addressing spiritual weaknesses. And so it's the key action every church and every believer must take in response to a spiritual problem. When you begin to understand that there's something wrong in your life, here's what I do in counseling all the time. I'm probably not a good counselor. I'm too simple. You come, we sit down, all right, what's going on? All right, all right listen, all of it. Here's what you need to do. Sin in your life, repent of it, and go do what you need to do. I, I don't know. Maybe that's the wrong approach to counseling. Maybe that's not very empathetic. That probably has a lot to do with my, well, we're not going to talk about all my problems. We're going to talk about your problems. But it just makes sense to me. If, if I've got a problem that's hindering my relationship with the Lord, my, hindering my relationship with others, I need to repent of that. I need to go do what I need to do, what pleases the Lord. And that's what he says here, repent and return. Do the works you did at first, Jesus says. Well, what did they do at first? Well, they stood in all of God's grace. They enjoyed the richness of Bible study. They devoted themselves to prayer. They were passionately worshiping the Lord together. That's what we see in the early church. They loved the Lord. They loved his word. They loved the people of God. They loved sharing the gospel of God. And so Jesus says, go and do those things. Love me and love people. So the prescription for this spiritual malaise was simply to repent and return to the things that once characterized them as a church. And today we need to remember God's love for us. We need to remember his love for people. And so we need to examine our hearts and to see if we too have abandoned this love for God that once captivated us. And if so, what do you do? It's a simple prescription. Repent. And go do the works that you did at first. My prayer for us as a local church, my prayer for us as a Southern Baptist Convention is that we would no longer be satisfied with religious activity devoid of passion for Christ and people. 
man, we've got too much religious activity going on. We got too much of just going through the motions. There has to be some love for God. Otherwise, why are we doing this? I was with people for 10 days that are religious people. I'm flying on planes with with men and women and children who are devout Muslims, wearing all the garb. I mean, getting on. I I walk past in in, in Dubai, there's a call to prayer at certain times of the day. And and so people are getting down on their knees and they're they're worshiping and, and praying to Allah. They're religious. I'm riding around in cars in, in, in South Asia, and they've got little uh, figures on their, on their dash because those are the gods that are important to them, religious people. But we do the same thing. Our gods just look different. We need to come back to having a true heart and a true love for Jesus. So Paul here speaks to the church. When we think about the church, it's a living organism. I hope you understand that it's not a building. Man, it's not a building. It is a people of God. And as such, it's a living organism with a life cycle. When you think about church life, you you need to understand that churches are born, local churches are born. There's a starting point for a local church. And there's a growing period for a local church. And then because of a set of circumstances, at some point in the future, some earlier than others, some long. I mean, we got a rich, long history, 174 years that we've been in existence. But at some point, every church, except for those who are existing when Jesus returns, will die. Why do churches die? I believe it's because of what Jesus goes on to say. He gives them a warning that if you fail to repent, if you fail to return, I'm going to remove your lampstand. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to close you down. This warning here in verse 5 is not a reference to the second coming of Christ. It's a personal, intimate warning to that local church, a local judgment upon them. Because they prefer religious activity over spiritual vitality. When we become so enamored in the way we do church and how we do church and preserving what we've always had over and above, a love for God and a love for people, there will come a day Jesus will shut that church down. Why? You're not useful to him anymore. Let's go ahead and take you to glory if you are truly followers of Jesus, but you're not useful to the king. He'll shut you down. I've known churches that had the mentality that it's going to be us, and we're going we're to do what we've always been doing until the last one's here, and they're going to turn off the lights and bolt the door. That's a terrible way to think about church. Let's be more concerned about the love of God and the love of people. Let's work to, to reach them with the gospel. And so this morning, what do you prefer, religious activity or spiritual vitality? That's the big question. Which one best describes your relationship with Jesus? Do you go through the motions? Or is your relationship intimate and passionate? What best describes our church? Religious activity or spiritual vitality? be honest, I don't really want to ask that question. I'm scared of the answer. I don't really want to ask that question in my own life. You know why? I'm scared of the answer. So what do we do? Jesus says, repent and return. Heavenly Father, this message, this letter is challenging. It's challenging when I think about where I may be as a follower of Jesus. It's challenging to think about where we as a church might be. Because sometimes we don't ask questions because we don't want the answer. And I pray that we'd ask those questions today. Because regardless of the answer, we have good news. Just as there was forgiveness and mercy and grace and new life, when we first heard the gospel, you saved. 
today as a follower of Jesus walking at the guilty distance, there is still forgiveness and grace and mercy and a fresh walk with Him. If we will repent and turn. My prayer this morning for us as a church is that today our eyes have been opened afresh and anew to the gospel. been reminded all that you've done for us, which you did not have to do for us. I pray that we've been reminded that we bring nothing into this relationship but baggage and brokenness. And yet we receive everything that's good. Forgiveness, eternal life, peace with God for our future. Perhaps the best thing is a friend. A friend who will stick closer than a brother. So God, I pray that your spirit has been speaking to our hearts and ministers to our hearts. As you end this letter with these words, to eat of the tree of life. There is good things awaiting us, but Lord, until that day comes, we need to walk in faithfulness to you today. So help our ears to be sensitive to what you would say to us this morning. As you press upon our hearts and say, you know what, it's not all good news, but I've got this one thing against you. May we respond in brokenness and repentance to you. Thank you. Christians, I pray for metropolitan area here in Richmond, touch our state, impact our country. God, that's what we need more than anything. time